Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. Every year, Gallup puts out a poll. And in this poll, they ask people from across every imaginable demographic group, who is the most admirable man and woman that you can think of this year? And they've been running this poll since the 30s. So the the sort of data and the history of this poll goes way, way back. In, In 1999... On the eve of Y2K, something some of you are too young to remember, on the eve of Y2K, they published uh, an article that sort of collated all of the data that they had for the past 60 years, all of the data that they had that said, who are the most influential, the most admirable people of the 20th century? And I'll tell you, there were, there were not a lot of or no surprises on that list. If you were to think of the most admirable people of the 20th century, you would probably come up with just about the same list. Sort of the greatest hit of human beings from that century. People, people like Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, and Billy Graham were all on the list of 18 people. But the question that sort of struck me as I thought about this list was, was what do all of these people have in common? What is it that ties together these people? Some of them were politicians. In fact, a a fairly high number of them were politicians. But but that makes sense because they're able to do large-scale good in a way that most of us aren't. There was a a high percentage of Americans, but because this poll was taken in America, again, that's to be somewhat accepted. But the thing that struck me was that the overwhelming majority of these people were people whose character could be described as selfless. These were selfless people. In fact, the only exception on that list would possibly be Henry Ford. And Henry Ford was, you know, pretty interested in creating his empire. He's not somebody we typically think of as selfless. But everybody else on that list was selfless, which is selflessness is counterintuitive to our culture. There was an article that came out this week in the Atlantic, and it described this couple of, I'm going to say some words here, and I know that some people of certain generations aren't going to understand. There was a couple of Instagram influencers, which is people who are famous for taking pictures of themselves online. And they were engaged, or they were going to get engaged. And, and to all of their millions of followers, this was a big event. Now, I had never heard of them, but apparently, again, they have millions of follow- followers are endorsed by all sorts of people. And what happened this week as their engagement unfolded is that it looked like this absolutely amazing scavenger hunt that sent the woman from, from her very swanky apartment, apartment in midtown Manhattan out to Coney Island, all throughout um, 
the Bronx. She went on a, another trip that took her over to Staten Island. She was scouring all of New York City with these clues and these little pieces along the way. And every now and then, the, the boyfriend would pop into the picture and give her a gift. And it was also great. And, and it seemed like this fairy tale engagement until it was revealed that not only did she know every step of the way beforehand, but that they had sent their itinerary to people and said, would you like to advertise and be a stop on our spontaneous getaway engagement? The entire thing was set up to be a shill for them to make money. This is not uncommon. This is the air that we all breathe. These are the people whose names many of us would know. And if we don't know their names in particular, we can think of so many other ways that our world has set us up to know those sort of people. You see, it's interesting. David Brooks says this, how can we expect young people to be rooted in things such as character, morality, and honesty? How is one supposed to be at once an arrow soaring skyward and an oak firmly planted in the ground? The meritocratic, the the we can earn it ourselves culture hones strivers on every aspect of their life except one. How to cultivate character. When we look at something like the Instagram story, these are the people that are famous in our culture now. What do we honor? Do we honor the character of men like Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, Martin Luther King, Billy Graham? Do we honor men and women of character? Or do we honor those who are able to get the most likes? Those who are best able to work the system and score highest in what we think makes them popular. You see, it's not just our culture, but it is ourselves. We tend to be tireless and fierce so that we can achieve and be free and be ourselves. But what we don't know is to have the sort of character on the list of Gallup's people. And as we think about this as Christians, this is even more significant. This is even more serious. Last week, we looked at a list of the qualifications of elders and deacons. We looked at the character trait of those men. And as we looked at them, we were reminded that it's not just our our works are are exhibiting things. It's not just a morality contest. It's not just a sin management pageant, but rather these things are the expression and measuring stick of how God is at work in our lives. And so this week we're going to look at something similar. This week we're going to look at a picture of someone who is fully gripped by the message of Jesus. But the hard part is, is that our struggle 
is that we like to keep the message of Jesus at arm's length. We like to keep it a little bit farther away because we intuitively know something. If we really actually started to believe what Jesus taught us, we intuitively know that it's going to cost us something. That it's not going to leave us where we are. That we're not going to be the same when we encounter it as when we walk away. And for most of us, we quietly count that cost and quietly keep it just close enough to say that we believe in God, but just far enough away to where it doesn't actually change our hearts. And so let's look at the life of a man who didn't keep Jesus at arm's length and what he has to say to those who would seek to be elders and deacons. So I'd ask that you would stand with me as I read Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know, this is Paul speaking, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend to you you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all, because the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. You see, we are good at cultivating merit and hustle. We are good at creating narratives and stories around ourselves on how and why we can and did and should succeed. But what we're bad at doing is actually the hard work of character formation. What we're bad at doing is letting God form us. And what we see in this passage, what we see in the story of Paul here, is someone who is gripped by something more than just trying hard. Something that was, somebody that was gripped by something more beautiful than we can imagine. It is intangible what is going on with Paul here. Because first of all, this passage is fraught with emotion. Did you catch it? This passage is incredibly emotional. Paul is crying. The Ephesian elders are crying. Paul is talking with great sadness. This whole thing is going on and happening in the context of emotions. Because on the one hand, we looked last week at a list of things. When the gospel grips our heart, it doesn't just change us so that we check off more morality boxes. Now all of a sudden, I steal a lot less than I used to. Now all of a sudden, I hate a lot less than I used to. I'm less angry. I'm less lustful. Okay, good. I checked off that box. I'm full of character. Look, we've all met people who do the right thing and are absolutely terrible jerks as they do the right thing. Well, let me rephrase that. We've all been people who have done the right thing and have been terrible jerks about it. This is when somebody pushes on your pet peeve, this is what they push you to, right? Like, like in the neighborhoods of St. Petersburg, many of the neighborhoods are set up so that every street and avenue has alternating stop signs. So if you have to stop at 24th Street and you continue down the avenue, you won't have to stop again until 26th Street. This is particularly bad because there's no stop sign behind Mazzaro, especially as you're traveling along the avenue. And so everybody is trying to stop and be polite on the street outside of Mazzaro's, except they keep asking you, go ahead, go ahead, go. It's like, no, I, you, I have a stop sign. You don't have a stop sign. Somebody's going to rear end you. You're, you're hurting. Th- and, and it's a pet peeve. And all of a sudden we get angry, right? I'm doing the right thing. I'm very righteous about the fact that I'm not going until the person without the stop sign goes. But I am also, through the swiftness of my actions and my fingers, telling them that they are wrong and I'm doing the right thing. No, Paul says it doesn't just change us on checking off the boxes and the list of morality. Rather, it changes the way we feel. Paul was assailed by tears or trials. Where are you investing your life so much that tears and trials come from it? For most of us, we would say, let's say not much. Because we tend to keep things at arm's length. Our, our idea of what is cool, our idea of what it 
what it means to be great and awesome is that we have a sort of ironic detachment. That no, nothing's quite as good as anything we've seen before. That we no longer get excited about, yeah, yeah, that food was really good, but, you know, I went to this other restaurant when I was in New York City and it was a lot better. Well, that, that yeah, you know, that, that, new, that new coffee that they had, yeah, it's good, but have you, have you had the other coffee shop's place? Because it's better. I mean, yeah, my kids got good grades on their report cards, but they kind of, you know, I mean, I guess they always get good grades, so it's like whatever. We, we have this sort of ironic detachment where we keep everything at arm's length to keep ourselves from being emotionally invested. We do this in a lot of areas. It's not just in our sort of regular hipster snobbery, which whether you, whatever it is, most of us have this in one area or another of our lives. But all of us struggle to let anything in to our emotion. In fact, John Green, the author um, of a book like Turtles All the Way Down and The Fault in Our Stars, John Green on a podcast this week said this. He said that there is nothing more boring than cool detachment. Because every time we think that we're being cool, every time we think that we are engaging in some sort of like lofty, yeah, I've seen better. Every time we try to be a story topper, every time we stay emotionally detached from things, we think that we're being cool. But what we all know is that when we're around those people, it just feels icky. It's like, just enjoy something. Yes, this cheese isn't as good as the cheese that you had in Holland when you were on the Viking boat. I get it. Fine, but can you just enjoy the cheese? Can you not just enjoy your family? Can you not enjoy the relationships that God has given you? Why do we always have to stay so cool and detached? We keep things at arm's length. We keep detached from things because we don't want to become emotionally invested in them. And this is doubly true in our Christianity. We keep detached and arm's length from Jesus because not only is he going to affect the way that we live, but he's going to affect us all the way down to the level of our emotions. And that's, that's uncomfortable. For some of us, that's uncomfortable because we don't like our emotion. Or we've never been in, in, in touch with our emotion. Or we like our emotional sort of feelings just the way they are. And so we resist. But this was not Paul. Paul let the people in. Paul lived in a way that he was emotionally connected to these people. Why? Because he truly believed in faith and repentance. Because he truly believed the gospel message of Jesus. It's not shallow. He didn't shrink away from telling people things. You see, it's easy to say, ah, yes, we'll, 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 do, the, we'll do the Jesus thing. We won't talk about sin, though. And Paul says, no, I'm going to talk about sin. Because if I want the message of Jesus to make sense, if I want the message of Jesus to sink down and really change me, I, it has to begin with my need for it. You see, just saying Jesus loves me is nice. But at the end of the day, it's a platitude. But when we realize that Jesus loves us and, in, and he loves us in spite of all the ways that we run away from him, the ways that we keep him at arm's length, the fact that his love for us is often unrequited, when we sort of begin to see that and our sin as that, we'll begin to see Jesus as beautiful.
And that's why, that's why we have to begin by looking and taking an honest look at ourselves and an honest look at our lives. Because there is something really offensive about Christianity. You know, it's, it's funny, and I, I mention this often, we, some of the t-shirts that we have here at City Church say, broken, messed up, accepted, forgiven. And we sort of sometimes become, because we say that a lot at City Church, immune to the fact that that's, that's actually pretty offensive. Especially when you say it about yourself, okay, but when you wear that shirt and you're basically telling everybody you meet that you are messed up. But in many ways, that is the very offense of the gospel, is that it stands in front of every single one of us, every human that has ever lived, and points and says, not okay. Violation of my holiness. Technical foul. Flag on the play. Inappropriate. And if we ignore that, if we sort of bend the rules, ignore the rules, move around them, the gospel is not sweet, and it is not good, and it is not meaningful. Because you're not saved from anything. You have no reason not to be accepted and forgiven by God. But no, rather, we hold on to these things. And when you begin to see that, when you begin to experience that God loves you in spite of the fact of how messed up you are, in spite of the fact that you don't want anybody else here to know what goes through your mind on a daily basis. When you see that Jesus loves you, even in spite of that, that beauty, the beauty of that love is absolutely transformation. That's why Paul was emotionally invested with the other Christian. Because he really believed that Jesus was good. And he really believed that Jesus was good because he really believed that he was bad. City Church, this is a qualification that we believe should be in our elders and deacons, but this is more importantly something that should be in operation in every single one of our lives. You want to know what true community is based on? It's that. It's seeing and savoring the beauty of Jesus together with one another because then I don't have to fake it with you. Because then I don't have to pretend. Then I don't have to wear my mask. Then I don't have to wear my preacher mask. I can tell you, I had a bad day. I can tell you, I totally yelled at my kids. Simply for being children. And that's how Paul lived. But but Paul's character and the character that he's teaching his elders is, is not just rooted in the gospel, but it's rooted in following the Holy Spirit. Paul had been traveling as a missionary for for probably 10 to 12 years at this point. But all of a sudden, Paul decides that he's got to go back to Jerusalem. And when he tells everybody this idea, hey guys, I think I'm going to go back. I'm going to take up an offering and I'm going to go take this offering to Jerusalem. Everybody's advice to Paul is universally the same. No, stop it. They'll kill you. They're going to kill you. And Paul's like, yeah, but that's what God's telling me to do. And everybody's like, Uh, But Paul, think of everything you can do. Think of all the ways that you could help the kingdom if you, I don't know, for instance, don't go to Jerusalem. But Paul was shaped by what God was doing in his life. He knows that when he gets to Jerusalem, it's going to go bad. He doesn't know how bad it's going to go, but he knows that it's going to go bad. And so following God this is something that's tough for us, is not always a guarantee of safety and ease. Look at Paul. 
Like most of us will never follow God in the way that Paul did. Was Paul's life easy? Nope. Was Paul's life safe and secure? Also, no. Right? Paul was plagued. Paul was about to go and start walking through the path to his death. City church, just because you follow God, you are not guaranteed an easy life. Jesus is not the key to five better ways to health. Jesus is not a Ponzi scheme or a pyramid scheme, not even a moral pyramid scheme. In fact, it's the opposite. Because if Paul's life is true, if Jesus' life is true, the call to Christianity is a call to come and die. Good luck with all that. Happy happy week before 4th of July weekend, y'all. But this is the character that God is building out in Paul. Why? Because the gospel is beautiful. It's more precious to him than even his own life. He's willing to lay down his life for his people. Which strikes at me. Because I'd like to say that I'm willing to lay down my life for people until they call me at an inopportune time. Guys, don't you know that it's tied in the bottom of the ninth inning in the Rays game? And you're trying to call me with some kind of pastoral concern? I, I, I know that sounds silly. But it's true. Because oftentimes I'm more concerned with my convenience and ease and the things that I want to do. And Paul says, no, 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 look. Look, this is about dying. This is about dying to those things that you love and seeing Jesus in this new world that that he is creating as more beautiful and more precious. And so he looks back on all the ways that he has done that, but he also looks forward. That he's going to, to lay down his life, that he's going to, when he gets there, be killed. That we are called to lay down our lives and serve others in the same way. You see, the chances that many of us in this room are ever asked to give our life uh, physically for our faith are low. But the chances that all of us in this room are asked to give our life 100% to Jesus in service of others is high. Like, literally 100% high. And that's what Paul was doing. He says that he's, that he's shepherding them. That he, is, that he is doing his best to make sure that everyone around him knows the beauty of this gospel. But he says that there's going to be drama from within the church and drama from without. That when he says things like you're sinners, people are going to get upset. To put it one way, yes, the wolves bite, but so do the sheep. Because when you say uncomfortable things that the Bible says, people don't like it. And yet Paul did. Paul pressed through. In every case, his life was formed by the truth and love of Jesus. It was formed by the message of Jesus' self-sacrifice. See, this is, this is why we keep Jesus at arm's length. Because we know that he calls us to die. And I still have my pet sins that I'm not ready to give up. One of my favorite, one of my favorite quotes in the entire history of Christianity was St. Augustine, who said, who said, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. Lord, make me holy later. 
How many of us pray that prayer? Lord, I want to serve you tomorrow. Right? We, we treat service to Jesus the way that we treat diet. They're best started next week. But Paul wasn't better than us. What he, what he had is he had a different imagination. He had an imagination where because of the gospel of Jesus, he could be changed, others could be changed, and the world around us could be different. And because that was what captured his mind, because that gospel dwelling deep in him, not just told him about his sin, not just told him about his forgiveness, but told him that real change was possible, that God could really change my life, your life, and the city of St. Petersburg. He began to live out that differently. He imagined it differently. And so as he begins to conclude, he shows a picture of how this formed selflessness looks lived out. He paints one of the pictures in his imagination. He says that the selflessness of the new kingdom begins to play itself out in the way that we relate to money and power. The way that we relate to money and power is different oftentimes than the way Paul talks about it here. Because what does he say? That he is giving it away. Paul talks about the fact that he didn't take money from them for himself. Rather, he worked on his own. Paul talks about the fact that he is empowering these elders to go and do that work. He's not staying in Ephesus to keep his grasp on the church. Rather, he's ready to move on and give power to others. His habit was to selflessly give his money and his power away. That was him imagining another kind of world, the new world based on the resurrection of Jesus. As he began to see and soak himself in it, it changed the way that he saw things. It changed the way that he looked at himself and his selflessness. This attitude was formed by his belief in something more. You see, this passage talks about, yes, the ethos, the way the character of a man is formed. But more than that, it is laced and built on the loving self-sacrifice of Jesus. You see, we don't become selfless so that Jesus loves us. Rather, we see how Jesus selflessly loved us, and it changes us. That is what the gospel is all about. That is the heart of what's going on here. When Paul talks about the fact that we, who are Christians, are the church that is paid for with the blood of Jesus, he is talking about the willing self-sacrifice of He's talking about the way that Jesus selflessly gave himself up that our sins and selfishness might be forgiven. So for some of us, whether we're officers or not, this passage is a call to take our faith more seriously. To consider not keeping it at arm's length. Not making it ornamental. But rather, imagining a world where my life and your life can be changed, where our relationships to one another can be transformed, where the way that we view power and money can be different, where we can be free. Because God is at work. God is at work in you, City Church. He is at work in me. And He is making all things 
new. And so this passage isn't a pipe dream. This passage isn't something that we look at and go, well, gosh, that'll never happen again. No, this thing that Paul had is available to us because this thing that Paul had is the gospel message. And when we begin to see it, it makes us think and dream of what St. Pete would look like if we sold ourselves out to Jesus. If we really believed that that was the most important thing. What would the world look like? What would places like Nicaragua and Sunica look like if we had the same attitude towards power and finances that Jesus did? And that Paul did. This passage not only calls us to reflect on the ways that we need to take our faith more seriously, but it also calls us to imagine a world where you and I are formed and sent out to live this sort of life all around us. May City Church, may we be reminded of that, and may we be sent out by that this morning. Let's pray.